Welcome to the 249th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with fantasy author Evan Winter, author of the brand new novel, The Rage of Dragons. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Evan Winter, author of the debut fantasy novel, The Rage of Dragons, published by Orbit Books. Evan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's an absolute honor and pleasure to be here. Before we get into the interview, I'm going to play a short excerpt from the audiobook of The Rage of Dragons by Evan Winter, narrated by Prentice Onoyemi, available from Orbit Books wherever audiobooks are sold. Guardians The first wave of Hedeni hit the barricade, and it was madness. Tao stabbed and swung at limbs and faces. He sliced away someone's fingers, praying they'd come from an enemy's hand, was almost scalped by one of the raiders, and barely managed to push away a third before she could climb onto his side of the barricade. It didn't matter. There were too many. There had always been too many. It was why the goddess had blessed her chosen with gifts. It was why she had given them dragons. The burst of fire exploded a hundred strikes in front of the barricade, singeing Tao's eyebrows. He threw himself back, away from the searing heat, and as soon as he regained some semblance of sense, he saw that Jabari and Tendaji were on the ground too. Tao tried to speak. His spit had been cooked away. Guardians! yelled a hoarse voice from farther down the barricade. Guardians! His vision swimming, Tao looked up and saw his first dragon up close. The behemoth, its body a mass of pure black scales that drank in light and twisted the eye, ripped through the air. Tao watched it course toward the Hadeni, sinuous tail trailing behind, lashing the smoke from Daba's fires to hazy shreds. When it was close enough, the black creature opened its maw and lit the evening with a twisting pillar of sun-bright flame, thick as three men. Tao tottered to his feet and climbed the barricade, watching the dragon's chain of fire explode against the ground. The Hedeni who were hit were vaporized, and the dragon flew on, past Daba's plateau, turning for another pass. Tao, said a voice he would recognize anywhere. Father, he said, turning to face Aran Solaren. Why, Tao? His father asked. Why? Tao's mouth opened and closed, no words coming out. After I heard about the raid, I sought him out and ordered him to accompany me, Jabari lied. It's my duty, as son of the Umbusi, to fight with my mother's men. I know I'm not yet an Indlovu, but this is my place, and I couldn't come alone. Aaron eyed Jabari and shouted to the nearby listeners, Shaw up the barricades. The guardians won't do us any good when the Hedeni are mixed in with our own people. The gawkers snapped into action. Jabari, as Inko Kelly of your mother's fighters, your place is best decided by me. By coming here, you've risked your life. Jabari was forced to nod, accepting as strict a chastisement as Aaron could give him. Tao looked down and away. The words were also meant for him. Please, Aren, accept my apologies, Jabari offered. I'm only doing what I believe I must. 
He lifted his chin and seemed to stand straighter. I also went to the keep barracks. The guard knows I'm here. They'll send men. Arn grunted. Ill-advised, but smartly done. My men and I thank you for it. Now, stay back from the fighting. He marched away to give his men more orders. It would break my heart to have to tell your mother that you died. More words meant for Tao. Yehagu, Arn shouted. Form up and help the townspeople carry what they can. Everyone began moving. If the gifted have enough reason to call the guardians, it means we must run. Run? Jabari asked Tao. The roar of several hundred foreign voices answered in Tao's place, and the two men stepped onto the barricade in time to see the full force of Hedeni raiders charging in their direction. Goddess, said Tendaji, his voice little more than a whisper against the howling tumult racing their way. Away from the barricade, ordered Tao's father. Run, now. Jabari was off the barricade first, Dendaji and Tao right behind. Needing little encouragement from the Ihagu, the townspeople abandoned everything but their loved ones, and they ran too. We are being herded, shouted Jabari. When the flats end, we'll hit the cliffs. There are no paths this way. The raid had been well planned. The initial attacking force was large, but not too large. The Ihagu and townspeople had been led to believe they could hold Daba and had willingly trapped themselves with their backs to the cliffs. Once they'd done that, the Hedeni launched their real attack, proving Tao's father's worst fears. This was no raid. It was an extermination. The Guardian made a difference. It would thin the Hedeni's numbers, but like Arin had said, if the savages got in among the Chosen, the dragon would have to hold its fire or burn the people it had come to save. Tao thought this through and knew what would come next. Yehagu, his father shouted, form up, battle lines. It was the only reasonable choice. The Yehagu would stand and fight. They'd slow the Hedeni enough to allow the townspeople some chance at escape. Tao stopped running and turned to face the horrifying mass of enemy flesh with their sharpened bronze and bone. Tendaji was beside him, his presence a surprising comfort. His father ran up as well. Jabari, Tao, he said. I need you to guide the townspeople down the mountain. Take them to safety. You ask too much, Aren, Jabari replied. I'll be no help to them, and you can't save me from this fate. I'll stay, just like every other fighter here. Conflicting emotions played across Aren's face. Tao saw pride and fear warring with each other. He'd been trying to save them. We'll show them what it means to be chosen, father, Tao said, his hands shaking. So we will, Arin said, holding Tao's eyes with his, before turning to yell his orders to the rest. Tighten the lines. Stand firm. Remember, the men to your left, to your right, they're your sword brothers. Keep them safe, and they'll do the same for you. Arin stopped there, waiting for the right moment. It came quickly. For the goddess, he bellowed. For the goddess, they screamed back as the Hadeni front lines smashed into them. Someone listening hasn't heard about your debut novel, The Rage of Dragons, yet. Can you describe your new novel? Yeah, um, you know what? 
Orbit talks about it as Game of Thrones meets Gladiator. And I think that's a really good sort of lead into what the story is trying to do. Um, but a, a sort of the saying that I'd come across a little bit after I was actually writing the book. So the saying didn't create my idea for the story that I was trying to tell, but I really like the, what it does in terms of um, the way it connects to the story. Uh, and the saying goes, it ain't no fun when the rabbits got the gun. And I, and I really like that because it sort of encapsulates the idea that I'm after, which is that in a society or place where people are potentially oppressed or pushed down, and suddenly those people decide to fight back, um, it creates a very interesting and sort of explosive kind of scenario. And that's really what's happening in the overall series and in book one, is that we're at the beginning of that explosion. And so do you remember the original idea that led you to writing The Rage of Dragons? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that um, it kind of came to me in pieces. And the, if I'm going to be completely honest, the, the original thought was simply, I love epic fantasy. I've read it my whole life. And I wanted to write something that felt like the type of story, the type of um, narrative that I would have fallen absolutely in love with had I come across it in a bookstore or, uh, you know, as an ebook or something. Um, so I knew it was going to be epic fantasy. I wanted it to be sort of like a swords and sorcery type of style. Um, and I, I tossed around idea after idea after idea in that kind of realm. And the idea for this story then kept building out of pieces of that. Um, and it sort of kept on attaching to things that were I was noticing in in the real world or things that were that were important to me in my own life. So I think that the nice part about it um, of the story for me is that it feels very personal, even though it's this big epic journey in a secondary world. And and can you describe your dragons and their place in the world that you've built in your novel? Definitely. Okay, so the dragons in the book are large, monstrous creatures um, with scales that are incredibly, they're almost impossible to pierce. And they actually are a deep, deep, deep black that sucks, that's like sort of absorbs almost any light hitting it. So they're like the ultimate predator. Um, when you try to look directly at them, your eyes almost shift away from them and you can only ever see them kind of in silhouette because their scales suck in so much light. Um, and they can be called by women of the Omehi. And the Omehi are a one of the peoples in the book, and that's the same um, sort of culture and people from which our protagonist comes. But our protagonist cannot call the dragons. He has no magical abilities at all. So he's in this society where the most powerful people are, tend to be the extreme upper class and also these women who have the ability to call down these monstrous creatures, the dragons. And, and that kind of leads me into my next question. I'm, I'm still reading the novel. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm really enjoying it. And, oh, thank you. And so part of that reading and kind of, you know, the world building and figuring out the world um, is that, you know, I'm discovering that there's a variety of warriors and cast and sorcerers. And I just wondered, and you just mentioned the Omahi. I, I wondered if you could possibly just kind of give us a thumbnail of an explanation of some of these different uh, warriors and military and the society that you've created. Definitely. So I realized that what I did after I'd already done it was kind of just dump readers into the deep end and say, you know, good luck swimming. 
And I did that because those are the kind of books that I like to read. They feel to me when I'm coming to them as if the world is already fully formed and as if it's not, it wasn't waiting for me to pick up the book and start reading about it. It was there and would have existed whether I came to it or not. And I love that feeling. It's, it seems, it just, it's so immersive for me. And so when you sort of just pick up the book, you're just, you're gradually introduced to all these terms and all these different sort of um, classes uh, in the society and even within the military. And so in the military, they have the, for example, the Ihagu, which are kind of the frontline foot soldiers, um, it, sort of an infantry kind of idea that are often used basically as the equivalent of cannon fodder. <laughs> you, have the, you have the Ihashi, who are sort of a, a more elite trained unit, almost in line with kind of like a, a, a Navy SEAL type of thing, if it was in, in our world. And then there are the uh, Inlovu. And the Inlovu are pulled from the noble classes in the society, and they are actually born physically bigger, stronger, and faster than the other classes. So they are extremely powerful warriors. Um, so yeah, that's sort of a, a really basic breakdown of what's happening, at least in the military structure. And so was The Rage of Dragons the first novel you ever wrote? It is, yeah. It's the it's the very first one. <laughs> and had you thought about writing before? Because can you give us a little bit of a sense of like your your professional background before you sat down to to write the Rage of Dragons? Yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to write, and I know that's something that I think a lot of people in creative arts, in sort of any creative field, tend to say. And I, I unfortunately or fortunately, I can't be the one to to sort of break out of that mold because since I was a kid. I wanted to be a writer, but you get a little bit older and you think to yourself, well, there's no way I can make a living doing that. How can I ever, you know, <laughs> how can I ever pay back my student loans or, you know, buy a house, whatever else you want to do when it just doesn't seem like you can actually uh, earn a living. Um, so I was trying to become a lawyer and I was going to university and, and on track for that. And, um, Oops, sorry, there. I, just, uh, I was got a call. I had to cancel it. Okay. But I was trying to uh, become a, a lawyer and was on track for that. And then what I did was I interned at a um, music video production company for a summer and realized that I absolutely did not want to be a lawyer. Uh, no shade on lawyers. It's a tough job and a hard one. Some of my best friends are lawyers, and I, <laughs> and I can tell how difficult that job is. But I thought to myself, this is not something that I think I want for myself. So um, I pushed a bit harder and deeper into the whole music video thing and the film side of things because I felt like, well, I can kind of t get a chance to tell stories there too. Um, it's a visual medium and, and, and that's different from writing, which is what I was always my first love, but you know, let's give it a go. So after interning, I got a job and I came up through the camera department and film. I shot commercials and music videos and a couple of short films and, you know, docudramas, whatever. Um, and then pushed all the way into music videos where I was a director. And I did that for uh, about 15, 17 years. Um, started up my own little boutique production company and shot videos in, um, through, you know, in England, throughout America, Canada. Went to Australia to shoot a couple of videos. Um, so I got to tell stories that way. And it was very satisfying, but I always noticed that although I loved the job, designing stories and narrative for the visual medium in that way always felt like I was writing with my off hand uh, as if I was forcing I'm left-handed but it felt to me like I was forcing myself to, to to you know write with my right hand when that's not my natural hand I could do it and the more I practiced the better I got but it never felt natural gotcha. um, 
And so I still kind of always wanted to move back to writing novels, but just life didn't seem to have the space for it. Uh, and then, to, to be frank, I got a bit of a break in my overall schedule. I knew I had about a year of, of gap, uh, and it was probably going to be the last time in my whole life that I would get that, I figured, because I was middle-aged and I needed to you know, keep going with the work that could pay all the bills. And I said, well, this is my last chance. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to sit here and write this book so I can at least say I did that. And if I hate the process, then I'll know. I'll get it out of my system and I can forget that dream forever. And if I enjoy the process and I wish I could do it again or, or more, but I can't make money, well, at least I've done it and I've experienced that. Well, I, I wrote the book. I loved the experience. Uh, I didn't want to do anything else. And it was getting to be time to sort of get onto that next actual paying job. Um, but the book was self-published on Amazon and it was getting enough traction and getting enough sales that I was able to put off getting the, the sort of that real person job, if you want to put it that way, uh, for, for a while yet. And that's when Orbit came calling. So I, I want to talk about this a little bit more, but I did have a quick question for you. So what, what's the most famous song that you worked on a video for that we would know? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I've shot <laughs> I've shot videos for Enrique Iglesias. Um, it's Ayer. It's his, uh, I think at the time it was his uh, most viewed Spanish language music video. Um, and so that was a fun one. We burnt down a room around him all in one take. So that, <laughs> that was exciting. I shot music videos for Sean Paul. Um, and, uh, I've worked with Flo Rida and, um, DMX. That's great. Uh, yeah. So it, it was a lot of fun. It was yeah. a lot of fun. Flo Rida is a lot of fun. But, um, exactly. so, so, um, so what was, what was the decision process for you to self-publish the novel initially? Um, I think, you know what, that's funny because it relates ex perfectly to the fact that I was this music video director, um, as a music video director and I loved the work. But I was never in control of the creative, really. Music video directors, unlike most other other directors, do end up writing the treatments or the scripts for the music video. That's something that we do, which isn't done as often in other fields for directors like TV or movies. It's often as a separate writer. So we get to write the scripts and we get to sort of develop the ideas and then shoot them. But, you know, the work isn't yours. The work is meant to support someone else's art. And so you always have to change and adapt and switch up what you're doing to fit the, the the actual um, downstream or upstream artists' vision and, and their goals. And I think that I did not want to run the sort of what I thought of at the time, I did not want to run the um, traditional publishing gauntlet of querying agents and then trying to have the book go out to editors and having them all sort of um, want to change and adjust what I was doing to, bit, to make it more saleable. Um, I wanted to write something that was, I wanted to create something that was purely for me uh, in the sense that it wasn't going to be adjusted by other people. I wanted something to exist in this world before I left it. I wanted something to exist that represented what I wanted it to be as a creation. Uh, and, and I think that was a, a large push for me to self-publish versus trying to find uh, a traditional publishing uh, house to take on the project. Sure. And and as as I'm sure you're aware, there are, um, literally hordes of people who are self-publishing these days. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm just curious for those people who might be listening who are either self-publishing or interested in self-publishing, what kind of marketing or did you do any marketing once you put the book on Kindle? I did. I mean, I kind of, with the music videos and, and everything else in my background, I do kind of come from a bit of a marketing um, space and mentality. And um, 
before I even put the book up, I knew that I was going to go very uh, aggressively at trying to get the word out. My, I tend to believe that, that there's that old saying, oh, if you build it, they will come. And I don't really sort of subscribe to that. I tend to believe if you build it and you tell everybody possible about it, a few will come. And so you have to just make it work so that the few who come uh, can support you, can support you beyond the cost of getting the message out to everyone who right. also did. Mm-hmm. So I, um, and, and I like data and getting sort of techie and, and getting into the numbers. I had spreadsheets and this and that because it, I enjoy that stuff. And it was a lot of fun to learn it all. So I messed with Facebook ads, BookBub ads. I was on Twitter trying that ad platform. I did AMS, uh, that's Amazon sort of uh, built-in native ad platform. I tried Google ads and Bing ads. I was just, you know, and, I, and, my, and my goal was to say, or I guess the belief behind me doing all of this was the idea that I was writing this story completely for myself so that I would love it. I didn't consider an outside audience in that way. I just thought to myself, I can't ever really know what someone else will like. You, you, you try and you guess, and that's what marketers do all the time. They go, well, let's come up with this sort of um, prototypical concept of who we're trying to sell this product to. And, you know, we'll name them John or, or Jane or something, and they like hockey, and they, you know, and they do all that so they can try and sort of drill down into the type of person that they're making their thing for, so they can speak to them. But it's still always a guess. Um, and I didn't want to guess. I knew what I liked, and I wanted to write something that fit perfectly for me. And my theory and my hope was that in the world of hundreds of millions, if not billions of readers, um, there would be enough people who liked enough of what I liked that they could enjoy the book too. So the challenge wasn't to change the book or adjust it or market it to, 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 to somebody in particular. The challenge was to find the people who liked the same things I liked. And I, that's how I, I viewed the marketing. And so how did you start seeing traction once you, once you started doing all of these various ad platforms and, and, you know, Twitter, et cetera? Well, you know, the funny thing about that is I had all these big plans and all these ideas about how I was going to market it. But the biggest and probably most important thing that happened um, for the book was that on launch day, um, I went to Reddit's our fantasy subreddit group and there are about 600,000 readers of fantasy that frequent that group and i've been going there for years and years and years but i just lurk i just look at the posts i you know i read the stuff and i and i'm learning and i'm enjoying it and i'm participating in the community that way but i never ever bothered to really post or comment myself well because i've been going there for so long and i did kind of feel like a part of the community even though i wasn't actively engaging i thought to myself well I want to tell these people who I kind of feel like I know a little bit about this book I've written. So I, I made a post on um, Reddit's R Fantasy subreddit group, sort of saying, hey, here's this new book I've written. It's an epic fantasy. It's called The Rage of Dragons. And um, the post had a motion graphic cover um, that was associated with it so that people could see it. It sort of has the dragon burning, you know, burning its its way through like a whole bunch of um of people basically it's uh and you know and it has sort of the protagonist on the cover and the and the and the main spellcaster controlling the dragon type of thing uh and that was meant to initially to be for facebook ads hoping to sort of draw people's attention but i was like well i have this thing let me show it to our fantasy and uh, i think that the the motion cover caught attention uh, a lot of people came into that post to sort of say hey what's this about and what's going on and i was fortunate enough that people actually went on to buy the book 
and this was on launch day. And so um, our fantasy was responsible for pushing the book on its launch day up into the top 250 books on all of Amazon. Well, and so how did the Orbit books deal come about? Um, and, and you know what? And that's actually related to uh, Reddit as well, because, <laughs> uh, yeah. My I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Reddit fan. Are you really? Oh, excellent. Okay. Yeah, I, I have like over 35,000 uh, karma. Oh, I got you. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, and I got torn apart a few weeks ago on uh, our fantasy when I when I said that I prefer Grim Dark over R. A. Salvatore. Oh, how could you say that? <laughs> I'm kidding. And you know what? I love that place, and I think that the moderators, considering the community is over half a million people, the moderators have done a really good job at keeping it sort of sane and decent as a place to go and have discussions. But it can be a rough, it can be a rough crowd. Like it can be. Like you yeah. know what I mean? So uh, there's no denying that at all. And and yeah, and uh, going to the question, my editor Breet from Orbit, um, she also is a redditor. And I guess at some point during this whole sort of hubbub of the book getting launched and uh, people talking about it in that initial burst, she found out about the book. She, I think she downloaded the ebook, I imagine, and read it and then actually got in touch with me. And that's really what got that ball rolling. That's great. So, so what's your writing process like? Did you outline the Rage of Dragons prior to writing the novel? I did. I'm a very heavy outliner. And I think that um, as people have sort of talked to me about process and everything else, I think that I've started to realize that it's probably because I came from music videos. And in music videos or filming specifically, or filming in general, I should say, we have to or we tend very much to plan and outline and shot list. Because once you're on set, time is too expensive to be trying to find your way. You need to have a really good idea of where you're going before you get on set and try to make the actual project go. Um, and some people I know don't like outlining because it feels as if you've already told the story, so why would you tell it again? I guess for me, it feels more like at that stage, I'm an architect designing the building, but the building doesn't actually exist yet. And the drafting of the story is when I get to actually build the building itself. So I don't find that outlining takes away from the drafting. In fact, I think probably my favorite points are outlining and then revising, which is maybe a, a bit odd, but I like it because then outlining, everything's possible and you get to refine and make this thing work and see the puzzle come together so you can observe the whole picture and you go, okay, I've got it and I'm not scared of where the story is going because I can see it all. Um, drafting is a bit tougher, but then when you get into revising, you have everything laid out and all you're really trying to do is make it better and better and better, make it more enjoyable for you as a reader, hopefully, to get into. Like, So I think of it that way. And yeah, so probably outlining and revising are my favorite points. Great. And so is it um, correct that The Rage of Dragons is going to be the first in a, a four-book series? That's right. I was fortunate enough um, to have Orbit um, believe in the project and uh, basically buy all four books. So, you know, I'm currently finishing up book two of the series. And yeah, it's, uh, we're planning for four books and one every summer will drop. So we just had Rage of Dragons, the hardcover, come out July 16th of uh, this year, 2019. And, you know, we'll see book two in 2020 and three in 2021 and then 2022 for the finale. And, and given that we're talking about a four book series and your, um, and your first one was just published, uh, have you given any thoughts to possible ideas beyond the Rage of Dragons? Um, you know, that's that's another really good question. And uh, I've heard people say that it's important and a good thing to start already at this early stage, sort of thinking of what's next. And 
I, I believe the advice is probably really good. I haven't had much time to do it. I'm so immersed in this series, and I still feel like, you know, I'm, I'm finishing book two, but I still feel like there's three and four to go, so it's really hard for me to step completely outside of the world and think of something else. I have, I have loose ideas and things that are interesting to me, even as I write books one and two of this. I, you know, I'm sort of gravitating towards certain things um, that maybe I won't get to explore as deeply in this story, and so it would be fun to explore in a different story. So I, I have ideas, but they're nothing more than just kind of like pie in the sky type of things. Sure. And and given that this is your first novel, as we've talked about, and, and your whole process of of writing it uh, for yourself, and then and then the self publication success and and Orbit um, publishing you, what advice? do you have for aspiring writers who may be listening? Ah, well, I'll start by saying that um, I'm so new in, in this and so early on in the, in the overall process in my own journey that um, it's difficult for me to give advice, but I want to talk about this. So I will say, this is what I think myself, having gone through my very specific process and my own journey so far. I think that it's important not to discount self-publishing. Self-publishing is a lot of work. You need to, it, you have to treat it like a business. It's about marketing and dealing with um, subcontractors or work, workers for hire, like artists and cover artists. It's important to understand your genre, um, you know, the different platforms you might publish on. Um, there's a lot that goes into it, but it's you can't discount it. It's an, it's a marvelous place to go to get your work out there. You can find an audience. And you can see how they react to what you've written to react to your story. And that can be really encouraging. And sometimes it, maybe it's not as encouraging, but at least it tells you where maybe you're not quite on track and you can make adjustments. And in the best of cases, you can actually make a living self-publishing, which is very, very, very surprising, I think, to a, to a large degree. But um, people who have been in that space are trying to get that word out. And it's still not really sort of permeated the overall publishing landscape. But it's probably at least in 2019, it's probably easier and faster to make what you could call a sustainable living self-publishing versus going to, through traditional publishing. Now, that said, my time with traditional publishing, and again, I'm, I'm very early in the journey, it's been marvelous. Orbit has been absolutely wonderful. I'm so glad that I'm with them because they get to help me. Uh, they take that weight of all the other business stuff of the publishing off my shoulders enough that I can try and focus in on the craft of writing. Um, primarily. And that's what I really wanted. I didn't, I enjoyed the marketing. I enjoyed the business side, but I want to write and try and become better as a writer. Um, I don't want really to be a business person. I want to be a writer. Sure. So you've mentioned in other interviews, your admiration of Robert Jordan's Will of Time series. What is it about Jordan's writing that appeals to you? Um, I think when I came to his writing, I never quite read anything like it in terms of how expansive it felt and how uh, it just he the story and the world drew me in completely i remember sitting there reading those books and everything else that was around me would fade into the would fade into the background and i i could see the i could see the room he was describing i could i was there with those characters and they felt in those moments as alive to me as any real person ever ever did or does and you know there was something just so incredibly immersive and uh, and and captivating about the way he was writing and the story he was telling so it was it was a real kind of eye opening moment for me and i think i was i came to it probably at the right time in my life um 
you know, it, it was just such a step up from a lot of the other things I'd, I'd been reading up until that point. It was just a, a marvelous series and, and incredibly well written. And are there other fantasy novelists that you grew up reading and loving? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm a I'm a big R.A. Salvatore fan, and uh, read <laughs> yeah, almost all those books. <laughs> and and you know, and I don't want to give away any spoilers, but there are some things in the Rage of Dragons that sort of um, call or call back to a lot of those a lot of the the books that he wrote. Um, so that was, I think that for me, R.A. Salvatore was one of those first times where I, go, where I realized epic fantasy can off, it's, it's, it's immersive, it's, it's this massive world building, but it sometimes can leave you at a little bit of a remove. And I think when I read R.A. Salvatore's books and the Dritz books specifically, that's when I first realized th- these stories can, can move at a breakneck pace as well. Like you don't have to sacrifice world building. You don't have to sacrifice all the rest of it. And you can still build in an incredible pace and an incredible energy into these stories that just keeps you turning pages, turning pages. So, you know, that was sort of, I think what I learned, uh, what I learned from him. That's great. And I should mention, I, I actually enjoy R.A. Salvatore. I was, I was involved in a conversation about Grimdark and, mm-hmm. and his, his name came to mind as someone but anyway, um, so so what what books, fiction or nonfiction, have you read recently that made an impression on you and that you would recommend to people listening? Oh, it's been a bit tough recently because with finishing up book two, I've had um, a lot less time to read. Sure. And um, and that's you know that's I'm just going to talk about that for a second because it's actually been interesting and unusual to go through that process where I'm usually reading much more and I'm writing now. And I find that not having the chance to read as much has affected the writing a little bit because some people say that they don't like to read when they're writing because they don't want it to influence them. But I love the influencing. I love to be to feel the energy of other people's worlds and their words sort of uh, in my space. I think that it, it affects the writing in a positive way for me, at least. Um, but to answer the question more directly, um, I've uh, as sort of like a, a nice, quick very, very propulsive read. I've been, I've gone through Will White's um, Cradle series, and uh, I'm all caught up on that. I think we're at book, is it book six or seven? It's called Underlord right now, and the series starts with the book Unsold. And those are, they're a lot of fun. Uh, they're, they're complete page turners. And it's such a, it's so good to go into a world like that and just really enjoy every single page. Great. Well, if people are interested in you and the Rage of Dragons, where can they find you online? Yeah, so I have a website. It's evanwinter.com. It's currently undergoing major renovations because it needs them. But feel free to stop in there and just take a look at what sort of the old website looked like um, before it's gone forever. Uh, I'm also most active on Twitter. with, uh, And my handle there, I guess, is at evanwinter. And, uh, I, you know, and I think I also, I, well, not, not that I think, but I do also have an author Facebook page and it's probably just Evan Winter as well. I believe if you search me, you'll right. find it that way. But I, I'm, I think I talk the most on Twitter. Great. Again, we've been speaking with Evan Winter, author of the brand new fantasy novel, The Rage of Dragons. Winter's novel is in bookstores now. So go grab a copy or download the ebook. Evan, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you very, very much for having me. Great. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.